Welcome to a special episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring one of your physician hosts today, Dr. Tom McGovern, and one physician guest. Today we have back for an interim report on coronavirus, Dr. Paul Carson. He's a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of North Dakota, uh, and he's a professor in the Department of Public Health at North Dakota State University, and he works with the North Dakota Department of Health. He was with us uh, just uh, yesterday on uh, EWTN Radio. We're recording on Sunday, March 15th, and we have new information. Paul, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thanks, Tom. Great to be back with you again. Paul, what have we learned in the eight days since we recorded our last episode about coronavirus? Yeah, I think I think it's such a rapidly evolving situation, and it's so fluid that uh, I think we're kind of learning things not only day by day, but almost hour by hour. I, I spend a lot of my day now, in fact, most of my day, in meetings in the university systems I was work, working with, trying to figure out how to manage this. Uh, I'm a consultant with the North Dakota Health Department, and we've been on multiple, multiple conference calls, uh, also with our governor's office. and and it's really kind of evolving before our eyes. So the, the things that have sort of changed in my mind in the last eight days since we last visited are what we've really seen uh, uh, from uh, some of the information and reports coming out of uh, Italy and what we've learned a little bit more about what I'd say China and South Korea faced. And you know what we learned from them are these really kind of harrowing stories of how fast the outbreak uh, developed. And so I, I still hold to a lot of the numbers that we talked about eight days ago about what I think we can expect overall with, uh, you know, total attack rates and with, um, you know, the mortality of this. But the, this, the chilling thing for me is that the, the surge of this has been so rapid in several of these hot spots uh, that it's overwhelmed the healthcare systems there. And so let's review for our listeners. First of all, what do you think the attack rate is going to be? And what does the term attack rate mean? Sure. So attack rate means uh, what percent of the population that's exposed will ultimately contract the disease. And we don't know what that'll be. And uh, I've been on a number of TV and radio uh, shows where they're quoting a number of other experts uh, who are saying anywhere from, you know, a typical flu, like 10 to 20 percent, to several ex experts postulating that it could be as high as 70% of the population. Some differences between this and the flu is that we don't think, you know, many of us uh, um, have any resistance to this. We, it's a new disease in the population, so most of us are probably susceptible. But as I said on the last uh, uh, broadcast, I, I think the attack rate may not be as high as some of those most dire predictions. You know, people that are saying 50, 60, 70% of the population will ultimately infected with this. And the reason I say that is because we have pretty good data from uh, the, the contact tracing that's been done, uh, both now in the U.S. and out of China and some out of South Korea. And it looks about the same, that if you have a household contact, uh, so somebody comes into your home who's sick, about 7% of your household members will get sick. Oh, that's pretty low. That's pretty low. Now, you got to bear in mind, though, if it just keeps going and going and going in a community, then you get, you know, multiple opportunities to be re-exposed. And so ultimately that number, you know, the total number who become infected still could be, end up being very high if you don't do something about it. But the, the actual direct contagiousness of it 
is I don't think as high as some people are, are making out. And we have data similarly from the contact tracing that's been done on non-household contacts. So people who uh, like are in the workplace or people who are in your uh, school room, uh, they've, done, they've done now pretty good uh, analyses on both again here in the United States and in China. And it was about the same, around one to 2% of non-household contacts came down with it. Excellent. So that, that's encouraging, but as I said, if, it, if you keep getting exposed over and over and over again, your chances go up over time. So, uh, what, and then what we have learned is that in some places, it's a real hotspot, just many people all getting sick around the same time and overwhelming the healthcare system with very sick people. What happened with that meeting in, was it Cambridge, Massachusetts, where like half the people came down with it? How do you explain that? Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm not familiar with that case, but that kind of a story doesn't surprise me. Do, do you have any more details I might be able to answer more I about? I just remember there were about 170 people, it was a, a Biogen conference, uh, and about 75 people came down with it there. Okay, so that raises a really interesting question, because one of the things that was seen with SARS uh, the severe uh, acute respiratory syndrome that was uh, took place. Um, well, I'm going to get the year wrong. I think it was 2004. Um, that that's a very closely related uh, coronavirus to this one. And yeah. what we found was a similar infection rate, except there were the, these numbers of what they called super spreaders, people who just seemed to be like a cloud of virus. And and there was case reports there where one individual infected like 150 people. And, um, like and not really known, yeah, not really known why that is or, uh, you know, what uh, characterizes these super spreaders, but I have a feeling that may be playing a role here as well. Actually, I'm just looking it up online. It says of the state of Massachusetts, 95 cases detected by Wednesday, 77 happened from the Cambridge biotech company Biogen, a conference in late February. And they, they, they even used typhoid Mary and looks like a super spreading event. So you nailed it. Yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me. And I have a feeling, you know, some of these hot spots. I mean, it really blew up in Wuhan and it blew up in Milan and uh, some of the surrounding suburbs there. And you wonder about super spreader events, because when you see uh, direct household contacts with that low of a transmission or other casual contacts with that low of a transmission and then an event like that, it looks like there are sometimes bursts of spread that uh, really are hard to predict. Okay, Paul, you gave us a great answer on attack rate. Now, what do we know, new, if anything, about case fatality rate? I think the, the data is becoming uh, clearer that some of the information that we were getting, particularly out of South Korea, is, is true. Now, um, what we've learned is that when you do a lot of testing, and South Korea has done more testing per population than any other country. They, they were able to ramp up their testing capability very quickly. And they've tested, uh, I think probably now it's close to 300,000 people in a very short period of time. Wow. And, um, and uh, the good news there is that the overall infection rate is very low. And I'm, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but it's, it's pretty small. But um, uh, of the cases that they identified, the overall case fatality rate, or sometimes called the mortality rate, is about 0.8% or 8 out of 1,000. Um, and that is better than what we heard initially, like out of China, which was like maybe 3 to 4% or 30 to 40 out of 1,000. That said, that's, that's not 
good. I mean, that's about eightfold higher than a typical flu season, which flu in and of itself can kill a lot of people, on average about 35,000 Americans a year. So not not as apocalyptically bad as we might have thought with, you know, a four or five or higher percent uh, mortality rate, but it's still definitely serious. So there are two websites that um, I've learned about that are helpful for people to learn about what the latest news is on cases. What would you recommend listeners go to to keep up to date on these curves that you're talking about? Sure. Uh, there's, a, there's a number that are kind of looked at, like um, Johns Hopkins has a website that a lot of people are using. Uh, the um, uh, European CDC has one. One that I found that, uh, and I'm actually not even sure who sponsors this, but I found that they were very accurate and very up to the minute, is a, a website called Worldometer, W-O-R-L-D-O-M-E-T-E-R, Worldometer. Uh, if you kind of just Google Worldometer coronavirus, you'll pull up their website and they have, they're pulling in data from uh, um, the public health departments of, uh, of multiple countries. And uh, it's very up to the minute and you can drill down on individual countries. You can look at stuff that we like to look at in public health, which is uh, true incidence curves. That's the number of new cases per day. Uh, you can look at some of those curves, like for the countries that have really managed to bring it under control, like South Korea and China, and you can see, you know, how long it took them to bring it under control. And uh, so that's a really good site. For your own personal kind of what should I do? How should I manage things? What do I do in my house if something like this happens? What does it mean to quarantine and isolate and all of that? The CDC or Centers for Disease Control is a really excellent site with lots of information there about all kinds of things, travel, personal hygiene, personal health. That's a very, very good site for that. And Paul just mentioned the magic word for this episode, and that's quarantine. And even though it's a special episode, we still have a medical trivia question, and I have to give Paul credit for giving the idea for it. So we'll ask the question now, answer it later. And the question is, what do Lent and the medical term quarantine have in common? We'll talk about that together later. So, Paul, these two websites, okay, we got attack rate, case fatality rate. Now we have a new word. It's a word that we heard back with Hurricane Katrina, uh, and that was storm surge. But you're talking about a surge of cases. What does that mean? Right. So uh, with, with an epidemic like this, you can see uh, exponential growth. I mean, this is very rapid growth in the number of cases presenting in a very short period of time. So uh, yeah, let's just kind of say, let's say ultimately, uh, you know, 10,000 people in your community might get sick. I'm, I'm making up a number here. But it's one thing if those 10,000 people all show up in the span of two weeks, as opposed to those 10,000 people are spread out over two, three, four months. And uh, what has been seen in like Wuhan, China, and in parts of Lombardy in Italy is they've had this rapid explosion of cases. In fact, some of the doctors there working in the ICUs have kind of talked about it like being a bomb in their city this rapid explosion of cases in just a matter of days to a couple of weeks, which unfortunately really strained their uh, healthcare systems to the breaking point. So you referred me to a video this morning where they interviewed one of those intensive care unit doctors. And, uh, you know, sometimes people here tend to think that we are, we're victims of overkill. We're trying to do too much. And uh, he gave some incredible advice about what Americans should think and do. Do you want to summarize that? Yeah, he, uh, 
he said, you know, if I can kind of summarize it properly, he was like, try to do everything you can to prevent this from happening in the first place in your community. So it's uh, once once it's really taken off, you're just struggling to keep above water. And uh, the best thing would be is to try and prevent it from ever getting that kind of a, a exponential growth and a surge in your own community beforehand. Do whatever measures you need to take. Uh, be aggressive and assertive about this early and, and try to not get in that position where you're just uh, struggling to catch up at all. You know, I'm on that World of Meteors website. I'm just looking up daily new cases in Italy. And, uh, you know, at the end of February, there were maybe 200 new cases a day in Italy. Uh, within four days, there were 600 new cases. Within eight days, 1,500 new cases. And today, about 3,500 new cases. It's still going up. And that seems to be a rapid increase in Italy. Why do you think their upward curve is lasting so much longer than South Korea, where it seemed to go up and down in a period of three weeks or so? You know, I can only speculate on this, but I'll, uh, I, I think this is uh, probably uh, accurate. Is um, uh, South Korea, China for that matter too, uh, um, really ramped up their control measures very aggressively, uh, very fast. And um, those control measures include a number of different things. Uh, probably the most important, first and foremost, is identifying all the cases and, and then tracking down their contacts and then doing isolation and quarantine. And just to remind people if they didn't listen to the last uh, uh, podcast is isolation means you pull sick people out of uh, basically out of circulation and remove them from being in contact with others until the disease runs the course in them. So you isolate them away from healthy people. Quarantine is where you uh, pull, a, uh, pull aside healthy people who have been exposed so you pull the healthy person aside um, and you watch them over the potential incubation period to see if they get sick or not so that they uh, don't uh, inadvertently expose more people. Uh, South Korea, for example, was very aggressive about that. They, they have the capability of testing a million people a week, and they were able to ramp that capability up very quickly. And, uh, and they take uh, really extreme measures to do case finding. Not only do they interview you about... Who, who did you meet with? Who do you live with? Who do you work with? Who have you visited with in the last uh, couple of weeks? They also will take your cell phone and look at where you've been on your GPS on your cell phone, and, and they will track those places down. And then they look at closed circuit TV to see uh, who did you talk to on closed circuit TV in these different places that appeared on your cell phone. These are kind of privacy things that they're, they've been willing to forego that might be a tough pill for Americans to swallow. But they did that sort of aggressive case finding, contact tracing to really uh, pursue isolation and quarantine. They also did a lot of the principles of what we're hearing about, which is social distancing, like uh, it, you know, not to go in big public spaces with lots of people congregating, to keep your distance from others uh, as much as possible. If you can work from home, work from home, closing schools, uh, closing businesses that may not need to be open. Uh, those are the kind of principles they did, and they did it very aggressively. I don't think Italy kind of jumped onto that. In fact, you saw when they were trying to lock down northern Italy at first, uh, and it leaked out from the press, all kinds of people jumped on buses and trains to get out of northern Italy and go to other parts of the country. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, right after that, they ended up saying, we're putting the entire country on lockdown. But 
it's just that sort of, uh, you know, uh, kind of thing. And I don't want to cast aspersions on Italians. You know, I mean, I, I think a lot of people would sort of be in this mindset of, uh, you know, I got to take care of myself here. But I think that every man for himself uh, thing can really hurt uh, a country when we really have to pull together on this to protect one another uh, from those of us that might be sick or incubated. Well, in our conversations, you brought up this, the whole concept of how people in a more collectivist society will probably do better than those of us in an individualist society. And you gave an example from China. Would you share that with our listeners? Right. So, you know, when uh, uh, I have a friend who worked in public health in China for about 13 years, and he has a number of uh, friends and colleagues still back there. He's in my department at work now. He's very fluent in uh, Mandarin. And he was uh, sharing some videos that some of his friends had shared about uh, how uh, Chinese were asked to stay in their homes and not go outside. And if they had to be out for some reason, that they had to wear a mask and get right back into their uh, apartments. And the vast majority of people uh, accepted that kind of restrictions fairly willingly. There are examples of people being you know, forced into that. So that's the dark side of, uh, uh, you, you know, a, a more aggressive kind of government intervention. But um, most people really complied with that. And and there's these, you know, incredible videos of people leaning out of their windows uh, in China and yelling to one another, you know, that we can do this, so we can beat this, brothers, <laughs> sisters, and, and yeah. you know, we're in this together and kind of still trying to have this sense of camaraderie uh, despite being isolated from one another. I think that's, uh, that's good food for thought, where, you know, back to thinking as Catholics, this reminds me of the interview we did with you on Dr. Doctor about whether or not there's a moral duty to be vaccinated, because when we're vaccinated, we are more protecting others than ourselves, aren't we? Yes, we are. Uh, so, you know, it, it was, uh, we did have that conversation about some of the principles of Catholic social teaching of solidarity, which yes. is that, that we're in these things together and that we have a duty to one another's, uh, one another's good, not just our own good. And uh, I think that applies here as well, that we have to be thinking about what can we do as a community and what and what do we owe one another to try and protect each other uh, to beat this together? Another country I want to ask you about, because it seems remarkable to me that it is so darn close to China and yet has the lowest attack rate perhaps in the world, and that's Taiwan. What are they doing right? Yeah, it's really kind of a fascinating case study. So Taiwan, I think, is only about 80 miles from mainland China. And, uh, and they got a handful of cases uh, early on in the epidemic, and they essentially stopped it. I, I think they're, I could look here, but I think they're still stuck somewhere around maybe 50 cases or so. And uh, they recognized very early on the threat that uh, this coronavirus posed when they first started hearing reports about it. In fact, as soon as it uh, was being discussed that there was this novel form of pneumonia in Wuhan, they sent a team of their experts there to investigate what was going on and what was the sort of uh, you know, word on the ground. They came back and recognized that this was likely and very possibly going to be something like what they experienced uh, you know, 16 years ago with SARS, where they were hit pretty hard with that. And they really ramped up their public health infrastructure, their, their pandemic planning. They had a lot of uh, uh, things in place. And so as soon as they saw that happening, they, they closed their borders. Uh, they uh, markedly restricted travel between uh, Taiwan and mainland China. They, they 
rapidly brought tests online to do case finding and, uh, and contact tracing. They had very sophisticated methods of contact tracing and they were very aggressive about uh, quarantine and isolation. And they, they essentially halted it. You know, on this world of meters, it says that their attack rate or cases is 2.5 per million. The United States, as of Sunday afternoon, is 11 per million. So they have less than one-fourth the, the frequency of cases as we do, and they are so much closer. So what do you think we should be doing in this country that we are doing and that we aren't yet doing? I think we need to learn from our our uh, Asian citizens across the globe and uh, and and try and adopt some of this a bit more, you know, this more maybe collectivist mindset. I don't know that word may have negative connotations, but I think we have to really be thinking, um, you know, some of the words that have been used uh, has, has been whole of government, whole of society, that it's all hands on deck, all of us, uh, you know, uh, joining to try and prevent this. And I think the things um, that we need to be ready to do now is one, first of all, we, we need to get testing uh, ramped up fast so that we can do this. I know that this has been a bottleneck in our own state here. I, was just, I just was on multiple texts and emails with my colleagues in our health system here and my health department colleagues about what are our limitations and you know when are we going to get this uh, ramped up. And we think our capabilities are going to be increased very shortly, but they, you know, we're playing catch up already. We had, we had very limited testing capability my own state, and I think it was true in most, uh, up until uh, now, I, I'm hoping it's going to improve a lot here in the next week, but we're, be, we're a bit behind the eight ball. So first and foremost, we need to ramp up our testing so we can find the cases. And then we have to be ready and willing to accept that, those two principles of isolation and quarantine. We pull out the sick people and keep them away from others, and we watch uh, sort of in isolation or quarantine, we watch the well people who are exposed and we do that willingly and we do that readily because we care about each other and we don't want anybody else to get sick and we don't want the people who are really at risk to get sick. So that's first and foremost, testing, case finding, contact tracing, quarantine, isolation. And this is probably better thought of as solidarity than collectivism because I think solidarity, as you said, is probably the positive way to look at this. Very good. I, I like that better, <laughs> Tom. Um, thanks for that, that uh, kind of correction. And I, I think that is the right way to look at it. Um, then the next uh, kind of step in this that we're having a lot of very difficult discussions uh, about right now amongst um, our public health department and our other government agencies and our other businesses and so on is how aggressive are we going to get on social distancing right now? So uh, already we're talking about, um, you know, uh, We've seen the cancellation of some of these big events like the NCAA you know, basketball playoffs and our hockey tournament up here, which is really big. And, um, and, and we just canceled uh, our Class A basketball, high school basketball. There was a lot of people that were very upset about that. I absolutely think that was the right thing to do now. I, I think there's more cases that we're not finding yet that are out there. And when we start bringing people in huge groups like that, you get one of those potential super spreaders and then you've got a, a lot. Then we're, then we're like northern Italy. Um, so I think it, it's the right thing to be doing that now. I think we need to think about our own personal uh, social distancing. So I, I just uh, this weekend had several friends asking about going out to dinner uh, at a restaurant. I said, no, guys, I don't know that this is the right time to be doing that. Um, I think we should be minimizing our congregating in, in places where lots of people get together. I think we should be uh, thinking very hard about whether we go to you know meetings where we have 
uh, many people kind of in the same space. Um, and of course, then the next thing is talking about whether or not you close schools, which has lots of implications with it. It's a very difficult decision, uh, but that's the sort of social distancing we are talking about. Well, Paul, I'm wondering, are there any schools left open in the United States right now? Um, you might know more about that than me. Ours are still open, but we're debating that this weekend, and I think uh, I think they're I think it's quite probable they're going to be closed by next week. South Dakota to our border has got their schools closed. Minnesota is closing for, I think, eight days, they said, or whatever. I don't know what, I think they said eight days. I don't know what that means. But um, they're closing for like a week and they're going to reassess things. But I, and I know Ohio closed their schools, New York, Washington. So it may, it may be already upon us in most states. Yes, yes. around here they announced at the end of last week. So most of Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, all the states around us have closed. And it, seems like it's going on. And when I go back to the, um, the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 and 1919, it seemed like the, the median amount of time, you know, kind of the average amount of time schools closed then was four weeks. How do we come up with a best time period for that? That's a good question. Um, I, I don't, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but as, uh, as you and I were discussing a bit earlier, if you look at the incidence curves in uh, places like uh, South Korea, for example, they they saw their, you know, rapid ramp up and surge and they put all these control measures and they brought it down over the span of about four weeks. I think, you know, I think this is something that we would want to assess on a on a daily to weekly basis. And when we see if our control measures are bringing it under control and we we drop the number of new cases uh, dramatically, then we can start easing back on some of those uh, social distancing and, and restrictions. And hopefully that would be you know weeks rather than months. Uh, but I kind of think that's the approach we should take. Now, most viral epidemics have had like a single curve up and then down. But the Spanish flu pandemic actually had two further up and down curves after the initial one. How, is there any way to predict whether or not a virus is likely to do that or not? Tough, uh, tough to predict. And I think that is a possibility with this one. I think I remember right with the Spanish flu, that first uh, wave kind of came down with summer, if I recall. Correct. And then started to pick up again in the late fall. And, uh, um, you know, there's been a lot of questions about whether this virus will fade away in the summer. Truth of the matter is, is we don't know. I actually think there's reason to be hopeful that that will be the case. Uh, one of the reasons being is that it's thought that part of the reason influenza uh, comes down in the summer uh, is because schools are out and, and kids aren't congregating and kids are sort of the incubator for influenza epidemics. Sure. Now, against that is that kids don't seem to be playing a major role with this epidemic. And so, you know, maybe the release of schools might not, you know, be as, as big of an influencer as it is with influenza. We just don't know yet. We'll see. We'll have to see. There's also some uh, environmental reasons why it's thought that influenza doesn't do as well in the summertime and don't know yet if that's going to be the case with uh, coronavirus. Uh, although when you look at the SARS outbreak back in 2004, it really started to end around uh, the end of May and, and in, in, into the first part of June. And so, you know, was that because control measures were working or was it, was it because summer came? Don't know. But I think there's reason to be cautiously optimistic. Summer will help. And then that gives us a little more time to, you know, try and develop drugs, vaccines, get our control measures better in place so that if we do see spikes again, we're ready.
can the vaccine actually be developed that quickly? So it's kind of interesting. The technology uh, has has just gone so you know so uh, fast on this that uh, you can turn around candidate vaccines, the the actual raw materials of those. The so for example, there are DNA vaccines, there are uh, recombinant protein vaccines, there are killed virus vaccines. You can turn those things around now pretty quickly. The problem with uh, getting a vaccine out into distribution is that. Uh, our government, I think rightfully, requires that it goes through a series of types of tests to prove that it's both safe and effective. That's what takes the time. And some people might say, well, why don't we rush it through when we got something like this? Well, there have been vaccines that have been rushed through in the past and actually made things worse. Uh, they, they, they can sometimes do things that are sort of weird in the way they interact with your immune system, and it can actually sometimes augment a, a disease. So we can't we can't hurry that. We got to do the process right. And that takes often at least a year and more often like two years. So I think at best people are thinking middle of next year for us to have uh, a candidate vaccine that's gone through enough of the uh, studies to be ready. You know, it reminds me, I've watched every episode of um, Star Trek's first like six series. I, I forget how many hundreds of episodes I watched, but there were a number where that within one episode, they develop and implement a vaccine. And I'm thinking to myself, that's <laughs> not going to happen. It would be nice, but it, it's not real. Yeah, it'd be good to be Star Trek right now, but we're <laughs> there. <laughs> Paul, I, I know in talking, you said you've heard some comments made in the media that you thought were perhaps a little uh, outlier, outlierish, outrageous, not in line with reason. What are some of the statements that you've heard that you would like to reassure people are not really reliable? Right. Uh, you know, I'll have to say that some of the people making these statements are, you know, well-educated, well-trained people. And you can say, well, what about his opinion versus, you know, this person's opinion? But I, I've tried to, I try to ask the question, what do you base it on? What, 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 what are you making that projection on? So I've heard, I've heard some people say, uh, you know, that we may see, uh, you know, 70% of the American population infected, uh, which is what, like 210 million people, and making claims of, of things like uh, uh, various projections where there might be 40 to 50% of the people hospitalized. So tens of uh, millions of people needing to be hospitalized. I think those are pretty way out there because if you take a look at what, what happened in China with their very dense population, uh, 55 million people in the province of Hubei, uh, they had maybe 75,000 cases there. I mean, that's that's less than a percent uh, that, um, uh, that you know, showed up sick with that. So I, I think maybe it could be that worst case scenario if we did absolutely nothing, but we're not doing absolutely nothing. We're doing lots of different things to try and bend this curve. And I think we can expect them to work as they have done in other countries. Um, and then, like I said, I base some of what I'm saying on what we know about the secondary attack rates in households and in close contacts where it's relatively low, lower than what we see with influenza. Um, I, so that gives me reason to be hopeful. And, and, you know, as I said, if you're just a moment ago, you know, a 50 percent hospitalization rate, I heard one person say nobody's seen that anywhere. No one. Uh, okay. The hospitalization rate in all the countries that's happened has been somewhere around 15 to 20 uh, percent have gotten sick enough to be in the hospital and maybe about five percent needing to be in the ICU. I mean, I think that's worst case scenario. Um, so I, I, we need to take this seriously. 
We need to do the measures that we're talking about. We need to step up as a people, you know, locked in arms, not quite locked in arms, six <laughs> feet away from each other in solidarity with each other, uh, but not uh, not panicking that, uh, um, you know, the bubonic plague has hit us and, uh, you know, a third of us are going to die. I, I just think that that is not at all in the realm of possibility. Paul, how has your own life changed in the last eight days since we taped the last episode? Well, uh, I do nothing else but coronavirus all day long and um, much of the night. Uh, so it's it's amazing how many meetings can be generated over this, how many phone calls, how many text messages. So not only you know am I meeting and trying to help advise our university presidents and uh, our university chancellor over our uh, our university system, that that generated a large number of meetings until it ultimately led to the closure of our universities, which is a very difficult decision. Uh, similarly, many, many meetings with the health department on what steps we're going to take next and when and how do we message this properly? How do we implement these things properly? But lots of questions and emails and text messages from every friend, family, colleague, uh, even remote contact that I've had, you know, saying, you know, we were going to go to Phoenix this uh, next week. And uh, do you think we should do that? And we were going to visit grandma in California. You know, so lots of questions about, you know, personal health issues, travel plans, that sort of thing. That's filling up all of my time. And and what is your general advice regarding travel? I, I think uh, a week ago I would have said, you know, I think you can travel reasonably if you avoid these, you know, really high incidence countries. Maybe don't travel if you are older and, uh, and you have underlying health problems that put you at higher risk of uh, getting more severe disease. I actually think I would really think very hard about foregoing any unnecessary travel. You have to define what unnecessary means for yourself. But, it, you know, put. I think we're beyond where we worry about who came from what country and where. This is escalating very rapidly in every state. And I think we just have to think very hard about not doing things that congregate people in close spaces uh, um, like we see in airplanes and in airports and so on. Wow. One of the things that many governors are saying is to eliminate any event where there are 250 people together. What is magic about this 250 number? There's nothing magic about that number. And uh, that was, uh, that was a uh, point of discussion and contention on a couple of the phone calls I was on today with the uh, health department. I mean, you know, it's a, you, you draw a line somewhere. So where do you draw the line? And and basically, risk will increase proportionally with the, you know, the more numbers that you have in the room in close proximity to each other. So certainly, uh, the larger events are going to pose more risk. Uh, but uh, any increase in number poses some risk. So if I'm putting, uh, you know, a class uh, at my university with twenty or thirty or forty kids in a class, that that is certainly a lot more than if there's two of us talking six feet apart. And so you draw a line somewhere and uh, we were having debates, you know, should that be a 200, 250, 150? And depending on your level of risk tolerance, uh, you draw the line uh, smaller or larger. Paul, I keep getting emails from physicians who have listened to the last episode and they say things are going to get much worse. Do you think they're right? I, I do, unfortunately, I do, and I think we're seeing it. I mean, e even uh, 
over the last two days of the weekend, my neighboring state of Minnesota, I think, went from 14 to 25 to I think there are 35 cases over the you know two days, and and they're quite sure that they're missing quite a few more that are in the community. I think they're right. Um, so I think we're going to see it uh, increase uh, rapidly over the next few days. But I think if we get aggressive about these control measures that we've been talking about, that we can flatten that curve out as we talked about. And yes, hopefully yes. not stress our healthcare systems to the breaking point like some of these other places have had. Paul, some dioceses are canceling masses, other are not. In our area, it seems like only the Catholics went to church today uh, on Sunday. Uh, yet the restaurants and bars are open. How do we reconcile these differences? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it's, uh, it's funny because I know uh, some of the conversations are about how, you know, maybe we shouldn't be putting a big strain on these businesses. This is their livelihood and so on. This is a once in a lifetime, maybe once in several generation events. We haven't seen anything like this, uh, really since like what you said, uh, was the 1918 Spanish flu. I, I think we need to think about uh, you know, how much short-term pain are we going to, going to be willing to endure to try and make for long-term gain and benefit? And I, I think we need to be more on the front end and uh, proactive about that. Now, you know, closing masses, I think, is a big, big step, big deal. Uh, you know, all, all of us believe that's very, very important to our spiritual lives and receiving the sacrament. Um, we haven't done that here, but I, I, I'm not sure, you know, how and when we make that call. I see that a number of dioceses have done that, and I certainly respect them for, uh, and, and I would honor that uh, recommendation. Um, I think we're probably going to see more and more of us getting uh, uh, closer to that uh, uh, decision. Um, I think if you do go to Mass, uh, and, and your, your church is still having services in Mass, we should Honestly, we should try and distance ourselves a bit from each other. Uh, we shouldn't be kind of sitting right on top of each other. You know, the ideal here is to try and be about six feet apart from each other so that we're not ejecting. If we are kind of sneezing or coughing or something, that we're not, you know, putting droplets on onto each other. And certainly if you're sick, uh, don't go don't go out. Don't, you know, be responsible. I, I was sort of hyper tuned in when I went to mass today and I was starting to notice all the people coughing in the church, you know, around me. I think they were just sort of minor random coughs, but I was much more acutely aware of that. Well, that was like yesterday. I went to daily mass in our little cathedral chapel and I'm sitting with my twins and somebody comes up and sits smack dab behind me in the pew right behind me when there was more room. And I'm thinking, hasn't this guy heard of social isolation? Yeah, right. and it, it's so sad how we think about other people as threats instead of as as people yeah this is i think what to me one of the most challenging things to think about in this because um you know we we have i think not only uh you know a natural explanation uh, from you know even people like aristotle and even biologists that you know we are by nature communal organisms. We, we thrive best in the sense of, of a relationship with one another and community. And uh, there's lots and lots of evidence of that, uh, even in the healthcare literature, that, uh, you know, close relationships and close bonds uh, make us thrive much better. And that idea of solidarity with one another, that, that we are, and, and St. Paul's does talk about, uh, the, you know, that we are the body of Christ. We're literally one body. 
and then to be saying get apart from each other yeah you're part of my body but i want you over there um, <laughs> yeah. and uh and in fact to even think about your brother or sister as uh, you know a potential existential threat really runs counter to our idea of community and relationship in the body of christ you know before we end i want to bring up at least one of the many good things you've been forwarding this to me and um you sent me something that c.s lewis wrote tell our audience why you think this was important uh yeah i, I really enjoyed his quote and I, I don't know if you have it pulled up i don't have it in front of me and you might want to quote it more directly but c.s lewis was responding at the time I don't remember what year it was, but uh, to the recent discussions about the development of the atomic bomb, and he was hearing and uh, you know hearing about and talking about many with many of his friends and colleagues uh, about the, the great anxieties that were pervading all conversation at the time about the existential threat that the uh, atomic bomb posed to them, and he he tried to put that in perspective, saying you know first of all we we know that we haven't existential threat that's for certain we're all going to die we're, we're all going to face our death at some point or another and we are no different now than and he says just sub substitute the person writing this said substitute coronavirus or anything else you want uh with what c.s lewis was talking about the atomic bomb that right. um, that that we face this all on our own and how should we then live well we should live as we always live that's loving one another caring for one another eating drinking uh, you know, going to mass, receiving the sacraments, and so on. We're going to have to do that a little more carefully for the short term. Uh, but life goes on because the same similar threats uh, have been throughout history with the plague. I mean, the plague killed a third of Europe. The Black Death killed a third of all of Europe, uh, which is just mind-boggling. Um, and he, he pointed out, you know, if you were living, uh, uh, you know, on, on the coast of uh, um, what is now England and Viking raiders came in. You never knew when somebody was going to raid your village and slit your throat. I mean, the, these sort of existential threats have always been with us, and we need to live trusting that God's there and He's in control, and ultimately our destinies with Him. You may want to pull up his direct quotes, which are a little much better than the way I said that. But I, you did that great. If if listeners want to find it, the essay is called "On Living in an Atomic Age." Uh, in 1948, you can. Uh, find it online, but I love it. Uh, the last part of the quote, he says, if we're going to be destroyed by here, you know, the novel coronavirus, uh, let that disease, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting with friends, etc., not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about coronavirus. They may break our bodies, but they do not need to dominate our minds. Uh, Paul Carson, the, uh, the Renaissance man of infectious disease doctors. I love these kind of references. And now he's going to help answer the medical trivia question of the day. So, Paul, what do Lent and the public health term quarantine have in common? Forty days. Forty days. Yeah, tell our listeners where the term quarantine comes from. Uh, you might have to help me with the Italian. I don't know if you checked that out, but I'm, I believe it came from the term quaranta die, uh, which is, and I'm probably saying that wrong, but... Uh, in Latin, it's giorni in Italian, but the quaranta is a space of 40 days. And why 40? Uh, I, that was uh, originally implemented when uh, the Black Death or bubonic plague 
was uh, spreading throughout Europe, and and oftentimes they came on ships uh, from people who had who were transporting goods and merchant ships that were bringing people and goods into various ports, and they would make them uh, dock in the port and not disembark for 40 days to assure that there was no one carrying the plague on that ship and bringing it on shore. Sadly, it was the rats. <laughs> and and that's right. It didn't work. It didn't work, actually, because their buoy lines would be tied and the rats would go down the lines and actually even swim onto the shore, and it was <clears throat> the rats that were carrying it. You're exactly right. You dirty rat. And this was first enforced, actually, in that great seafaring state uh, at the time of Venice in the 14th century. And a, a saint, uh, so if you are under quarantine, there is a saint that you can confide in. And that's uh, a fairly modern American saint, St. Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton. Because when she was married to William Seton and he was sick with tuberculosis, they made a trip uh, to Italy where they thought the weather would be better. Uh, and unfortunately, their ship was quarantined for 30 days, uh, and her husband died eight days later in Italy. But it was after that quarantine which she came into the contact of the Catholic faith and converted because of that trip. So someone who understands quarantine. And, and before we end this special episode, Paul, what final um, thoughts would you like to leave with listeners? Uh, you know, I... I I would probably try and leave the thought that we can have some equanimity about this as Catholics and Christians. Uh, that, uh, you know, one of my favorite little books that I use in my time of adoration now is um, uh, Father Jacques Philippe's Searching for and Maintaining Peace. And, uh, and he, he just has these wonderful, I encourage anybody that likes to sit and do adoration or prayer, every little page of those is gold, that we, we can really be at peace about things because we know God is in control no matter what happens to us, no matter what. He will bring good out of it and can and bring good to uh, each of us no matter what our circumstances or sufferings. Paul, uh, thank you so much for being available on short notice to help our listeners out. We're going to get together again in four days and, and do this again so that it will air on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Uh, God bless you, and we look forward to having you and our listeners back together. Thank you, Tom. God bless you as well. Stay healthy. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.